You're listening to the Two GPs in a Pod podcast, the podcast about clinicians doing something different, inspiring and outside the box. Don't forget to check out our sister site, mygpevents.co.uk, if you're looking to plan your CPD events and courses for the coming year. I'm your host, Shabs Upadhyay. Happy New Year to our listeners and thanks for tuning in. Now, today is really exciting. I've hopped and I've jumped to Skipton House. <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've prepared that. I had all of Christmas holiday to prepare that. <laughs> AKA Skipton House, AKA NHS England Towers. Um, I'm here to meet a very special and awesome guest. We're starting the year really, really, really big. It is an honour to welcome you, Dr. Nikita Kanani. Can I call you Nikki? Please Everyone do. Calls you Nikki. Everyone calls uh, so me Nikki. So welcome, Nikki, to Two GPs in a Pod. Um, Please, please, can you tell people about what you do? What are your roles? Oh, well, first of all, thank you for having me Pleasure. and Happy New Year. This is a great way to start the new year. Um, and this is uh, the first podcast in this official role. So I'm really delighted that it's with you. I'm glad to be that. <laughs> I'm glad to be that so, um, Yeah, I'm, I'm Nikki. I'm a GP in South East London in Bexley in a little practice called, well, it's actually quite a big practice now. Mm-hmm. It's getting bigger um, yeah. in Welling. It was actually the practice I trained in as well. So I've... Great been there for a long time and I absolutely love it and um, I'm there one day a week now and then the other four days of the week I am here at NHS England Towers although actually I try very hard not to be here too often and we'll come on to that um, as Director of Primary Care for NHS England. Okay now I'm interested to know what so Director of Primary Care for NHS England what is the remit of this role? What are you responsible for? It's a, it's a really good question. Yeah. And I think sometimes it feels like it could change every week. I think there's uh, three main parts to it. One yeah. is um, within the organisation, within NHS England, do we have a strong clinical voice around what happens in primary care, yeah. what needs to happen in primary care, and where is the vision of primary care for mm-hmm. the future? Um, so I spend a lot of time understanding what's happening internally, trying to join together different pieces of work, yeah. making sure it's clear and coherent, and I'll come on to what those pieces of work look like mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah. There's something really important about the external relationships. So um, what is the relationship of NHS England with our primary care-facing um, stakeholders? So that could be our CGP yeah. or the BMA, but equally as important, if not more so, is your everyday practices in your community pharmacies yeah. and other parts of your local primary care network and setup who can really tell you what's going on out yeah. there, what, how it really feels, and what we need to do to make sure that primary care is safe and sustainable and high quality and resilient and is around for the next 70 years let's pick an arbitrary figure there that's i mean that's really important and and you know that's a very wide very wide remit um for you what's the toughest thing about doing all of that or having to do all of that because that's a lot of stuff (laughs) well i guess i i think there's two things that are particularly um, both exciting and challenging around the role. Mm-hmm. One is that it's it's a huge organisation, and I I have an even more respectful sense of how big the country is now because when I took on this role, um, I committed to myself that I would travel and make sure I got to see frontline practices and networks and individuals um, at least every week, if not every couple of weeks. So yeah. going around the country, understanding what people are experiencing and feeling yeah. is, is important, um, but it's also quite challenging because I'll find out what's working or what's not working, and then uh, it must be a personality uh, flaw or uh, anyway, it feels like I need to do something about it. So I keep collecting sort of things that need to be solved or actioned or yeah. done or learnt from so I create a a decent job just for myself as it is and the other thing is I think again because it's such a big organisation things can take time to do so um, prior to this role I was the chief officer of a CCG yeah and in a sense it was quite um was really tangible the impact you could have just like being a GP um uh, okay not necessarily people with longer term needs but sometimes you can solve things you can do things you can support people quite rapidly and that feels I think quite rewarding mm. for the individual and for yourself um at this level it is a much longer journey getting to an outcome or an output although I appreciate the long-term plan has been done in a relatively short amount of time, so yeah. I'll be able to see that through. I hope. It's you touched on something there. I, I you know follow your social media and and read all the things. That, you know you're clearly passionate about primary care. Um, yet there are these lots and lots of competing interests, like you said, and mm. you know they're all equally important. You know workforce, 
digital transformation. Um, you know, some people say, yeah, it's all about um, you know making sure that you integrate primary care, secondary care yeah. well, etc. And you've got all of these competing things. And what I'm hearing is that you have, you know, you rec- you recognise mm. that they're all, you know, important in their own way. Um, what I also hear is that you know change especially at these levels mm. is quite difficult to make and yeah. you know I, I suppose no one would be surprised hearing that um <laughs> but how do you fight that how do you how do you how do you make that priority because NHS England is a big beast yes. you know you've got secondary care everyone you know secondary care and specialism is really you know sexy and powerful and they've got you know it's it's you know everyone talks about that yeah. um and that's where all the biggest amount of money is I suppose um but so you're you're also there to say, hey, you know, how about prim- you know this is this really is important, and and within that, okay, there there is these competing things. But I guess widely, yes, you know, that's what you're fighting. Yeah, I, I mean, what's been really interesting is um, being here for. I'll have been here at NHS England for a year in February. Yeah. Um, but sort of six months pretty much as director and prior to that deputy director so in the six months as director I can I can hear and feel people talking about primary care a a huge amount recognizing that it's important in lots of ways both in terms of the profession it represents but the offer it gives to the general public as well Mm -hmm. um and so for me to actually get change to happen it is about having almost that army or that network or that those groups of people who are constantly saying that in different forums. So, yeah, sure. you know, you've got primary care sits in lots of different places in the organisation, uh, quite understandably, from finance to um, to OD, to primary care services England, to um, primary care delivery, to transformation. You know, there's lots of different elements to that. And I see very much my job is to pull together all of those different elements and say, this is what we're trying to achieve. So we have to try and work with one voice and one ambition. Yeah. And what's been great around the last six months is... We developed a long-term plan and secured additional, in fact, record funding into primary care through that. So um, you will recall Theresa May's announcement about 3.5 billion additional to primary and community services. So that's that's big. That's record. That's exciting. We're negotiating a GP contract, which I hope is going to be uh, transformational. Um, and we're in the middle of that now, so that's a confidential piece. Yeah, but sure. we are absolutely doing something that's important for our practices right now that should change the way that we work right now, make it better to work in general practice right now. We've got a partnership review that's going to be published in the next few weeks. There's a lot of interest about that. There is, there is. There's a premises review coming up. So we're doing lots of things that I finally feel we're going to reap the the benefit of, the focus of this year. And we've also got a really strong comms strategy that sits alongside that where we're saying, you know, we can't talk anymore about seeing your GP for everything because that's not always the right thing to do. So let's do some other things around the side of these big pieces of work that say that help us uh, use our resources better, use primary care in a, in a better way. So um, it, it can be frustrating, but I think the frustration's felt across the piece. I think everyone feels a bit of that. Yeah. But that's why getting out to the front line is really important. That's why getting out to practices and seeing what people are experiencing is important. Yeah. And being able to reflect that back. Um, it's also still really important to be a GP in this role. So, yeah. you know, seeing patients, being able to sort of reflect back what my patients experience when I'm at the next meeting that I'm in, that's that's a core part of it as well. And that, I think, helps change happen a bit a bit faster. I, I really want to come back to that. But mm. just before we move on to that, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into this role? You mentioned the CG, <laughs> but how did you get into this role, especially initially as a deputy? How did you get into it? Uh, so I, I was um, chair of a CCG. Well, if we go back a few, a little mm-hmm. bit, I was yeah. a, generally a frustrated uh, house officer and SHO in medicine um, in a DGH, um, and I had a deputy chief exec that sort of heard me talk about how we needed to change local services or medical services within the directorate on a number of occasions. Yeah. So she sort of said, um, well, why don't you just do it? And gave me a, the first, I suppose, fellowship, but it wasn't a fellowship. Um, and it was before fellowships. It was sort of time out redesigning services. Yeah. And we ended up doing a full-scale redesign of A&E, of the medical directorate, developing community teams, which were joint funded by the local authority of the PCT and the hospital at the time, which was quite unusual mm-hmm. then. Um, and when I did that, I just really enjoyed talking to GPs as I was setting up the community service and suddenly realised that that connection was really valuable, that connection to community was completely unusual and special. So I started my GP training, um, but my PCT at the time sort of 
found out that I'd done some service redesign, so they started pulling me into the various bits of service redesign in yeah. the PCT, um, and then the Health and Social Care Act landed, and I did some work at NHS Direct for a community provider, just moved around the system a little bit, tried yeah. to feel, get, get the feel for different parts of the system, how it works, I've always been interested in how different pieces fit together, or mm-hmm. don't sometimes, um, and then when we went into the authorisation process for commissioning groups, uh, the team asked me to come back to do some work and then I joined the commissioning board of our CCG. Um, my chair resigned, I became chair yep. um, and then when my chief officer moved on to a new patch I thought it might be interesting to pair the clinical uh, leadership and you, you can't see me but I'm putting leadership in inverted commas, yep. you can come back to that, but leadership yep. with the financial accountability because I wanted to have both together and say you know this is what we focus on. And I think we had an amazing run in the patch. It was, I mean, Bexy's always been, um, always struggled financially, mm-hmm. um, but we got a tiny bit more money in. We got new GPs in. We got some really great clinical outcomes. So the fourth best um, on the National Diabetes Audit, uh, best hypertension control in the uh, city, in London, um, some of the best stakeholder surveys, staff surveys, etc. So we got this building energy around yeah. working differently, um, really understanding what our values were, what, where we were, what we were trying to achieve for our population, working with our local authority in a way that really hadn't happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of, I was going to say last year, but I mean 2017, our CCG joined, as many others did, a, a, a merged organisation or a, sure. a managed organisation of a number of CCGs. Um, that didn't feel like the right direction of travel to me. I wanted to retain my kind of clinical primary care focus. Yeah. And when this job came up, I thought it'd be really interesting to understand how the organisation works um, yeah. from a national perspective, how... How what we see on the uh, I guess on the front line or in a CCG or in a local place, you know, how much is that influenced by what happens nationally? How much can I help to join up the vision and the narrative and the ambition um, and get primary care onto the sort of footing it, it needs to be? And so it made sense to apply for the job. Yeah, I got it. Did it for six months. Um, and when my uh, predecessor resigned, I was asked to step into the. Yeah. Director role, um, and yes, I'll nearly be doing it for six months uh, in a few weeks. It's gone and, very and quickly. Yeah, it has gone quickly. I mean, <laughs> you know, lots and lots of things there that you you have done in your career that have been outside of the box. Um, lots of it is, you know, let's. Let, I mean, let's come to that leadership yeah. thing then, um, because I, I think there there are different parts to that. There's one little bit that of that that I would love to get your opinion and and, and learn about your experience mm. on being a woman in leadership. Yeah. So I've got lots of female colleagues and friends who you know face challenges with you know within or maybe trying to reach um, a high level or a leadership position. Yeah. And you know you've done that at multiple levels. Mm. Um, you know, there are lots of things that are talked about, um, you know, being a woman in a male-dominated environment, trying to juggle that being a parent. Yeah. Um, and with that first point of, you know, a male-dominated environment, you must have been in lots of those yes. um, in your previous position. Um, now, I hear of colleagues who kind of, tr- you know, they try to hold their own. They yeah. try to be professional. They try to be assertive. And they often kind of get accused sometimes of being hard to work with or sometimes yeah. worse things. What's, have you had any experience with that stuff in the multitude of roles that you've had? Yes. Um, and what would you advise <laughs> my colleagues who are going through that? Maybe So I think our friends? world often feels very male-dominated. Um, one of the best things I think we did in my old patch was our governing body, which I think was probably, I never got to test this, but I think it was the most diverse governing body in the country, I'm sure of it, because we had all of the protected characteristics represented, but it was really reflective of the population that we were there to look after. And that's what's important about this. It's not about one gender, one ethnicity. It's about having that right balance for the world that we're living in. And I had a conversation with somebody yesterday um, on New Year's Day, sort of saying, how can we make sure that what we do as um, healthcare leaders best represents the population that, you know, it's our job to represent. So, you know, if we don't know, and, you know, if we're not... um, from a small Bangladeshi community, how can we know what that community actually needs? So that's been something that's been important to me for a long time. I've definitely struggled with what you described, say uh, environments that are very 
male and where often you feel like you're not getting heard. Um, I remember years ago, so it was pre-Social Care Act, so let's say five, six, seven, eight years ago, again and again being around a table where I was one of two women and everyone else was male and I'd say something and then someone else male would say it and suddenly everybody heard it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So myself and the other women had this kind of um, I've got your back scenario that we developed where if she said something I would then quickly second it and if I said something she would quickly second it so people would hear it. I mean it's less of an issue now but it's definitely something that I've come across. What if you didn't agree agree with the other? I would try and at least amplify it and then I could challenge it but it had to be heard first because Mm. we're so often not heard. Um, I've definitely Mm. seen the scenario where um, women adopted different styles for the environments they were in it wouldn't work for me i mean um you can see me right here listeners can't but often you can tell what i'm thinking across my face straight away so i'm not very good at not being you know my full self Um, and in fact my coach i have a coach i do recommend that um especially as you're, as you're navigating different careers and different parts of a career. My coach said maybe five years ago, he was like, you have to own the whole of you, Nikki. You are a woman. You are BME and you are younger than most of the people yeah. you work with and you are a clinician. You can't just be one of those things. You are all of those things and you need to own that and you need to represent on all of those angles. Yeah. And, it's like, and so that really struck me and that's been a reminder. And one of the things that I still find utterly, um, I don't, I don't quite appreciate it, but I've noticed it in the last six months, the number of women who are mums, who are clinicians, who've got in touch, um, just, you know, direct messaged me, texted me, emailed whatever to say, thank you for representing. And I don't, I don't realise what it means being in this role Mm. until you get messages like that. Because I remember after I'd had my daughter, so my youngest is seven, and I did a panel on women in leadership. And I remember a female role model, and again, I'm using my inverted uh, commas. I'm not very good on podcasts because I use my hands. What we'll do, <laughs> we'll, what we'll do, we'll have a picture of you with the inverted okay, commas, brilliant. and we'll put it on the show we'll notes, so then people, then people remember. Will, there'll be no doubt. <laughs> so I remember this um, role model in general practice saying, "Well, you can't be a mum and be in a influential position in healthcare." or chair of a college, or running, leading a committee, or whatever, um, and be present for your children's lives. And I thought, well, then I don't want to do that. That yeah. isn't the sort of mum I want to be. Um, and, and equally, it's not the sort of life I want to lead either. I mean, life has to be about more than work and, and, and all of that. So that's been something that has always reminded me to keep checking in on myself with the balance. Have you, you know, in this, in NHS England Towers, as it were, <laughs> um, you know, you you know you make no qualms and you know you wear it on your sleeve you yeah. know you're a mama yes. you see that on social media yeah. and, and in in what you say in in your narrative about yes. who you are do you in any of your roles get people who push that back to you perhaps and say and say say continuing this yeah. stuff that they say to you now because that was several yeah. years ago but does that still you still fight that now so what's really interesting and i think it's really important to be said is in this role, I have had nothing but support for being a mum. Yeah. So if I've needed to go and do something or be somewhere or be present, I've not had any pushback. Mm. My uh, partner in crime, Dom Hardy, who uh, shares an office with me, um, he will go and he'll do the pickups as well when he needs to. His own kids, not mine, because yeah. that would be strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I see a uh, role played in lots of different places. Um people being present. I think the difference is people tend to have old kids. So I'm one of the few with young children. Mm. But I have, there are other directors here who have younger children who who will switch off when they need to, maybe switch back on later. So I think this environment's been really, really supportive. I think what's interesting is when I was chief officer of the CCG, or even when I was chair, um, I would, I've had an open diary policy for a long time. so I'd put in, you know, sports day, Christmas concert, Christmas concert 48 of that two-week period because that's what Christmas is like and mm. any parents listening will feel the same. You know, you've just come out of that barrage of, you know, quite honestly, within two weeks, you could have 10 different school things to be present at. Yeah. Um, but I put them all in the diary. And what I noticed over time is more people would come to me initially and say, oh, can I go to my child's sports day? I noticed you're going to, can I go to mine? I'm like, yes, of course you can. Yeah. But we'd, we, I'd inherited a culture in the CCG where people weren't sure whether that was okay. Mm. Um, whereas, whereas as I got later into the role, people recognised that, um, A, I did it, 
and therefore they should do it as well. Actually, people work a lot better if they get to be their whole selves. Um, So I don't think it's a balance. I think it's a chaos. I think work-life balance doesn't exist. I Mm -hmm. think it's chaotic, but I think that's okay because it means that you can go in and you can do drop off and come in late and then you can, you know, sometimes have to leave early. But then, you, you know, most of us have got really strong work ethics. I don't think anyone would say that I don't get my job done, whatever my job looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it isn't always easy. And there are periods of your career and your life and your portfolio when it doesn't feel like it's doable. But I do think eventually you can get to a place where you can be at the stuff you want to, yeah. um, as well as do the roles that you want to as well. And yeah. I think that's important to know. Absolutely. And so your, so your, your main bits of advice are then perhaps like embrace the chaos. Yes, don't um, don't feel unnerved by it. It's um, I've often described it as crazy paving. In fact, a mentor once said to me, "Your life is like crazy paving." And I was like, "Oh, yeah, probably." <laughs> Say yes. Don't don't be afraid to try stuff out if it doesn't work. Particularly if you're a, a clinician's in the audience, you have your clinical career, you have that. Um, so be be brave enough, try things out because not everything works. I've done a range of roles where I sort of stepped into them and thought, "Oh, this doesn't feel quite right" for lots of reasons. Um, and you can step back to clinical work. That's not because it's a fallback, but it's just because you can have that flexibility if you want to, if that's something that's interesting sure. to you. And how about that bit of like, you know, speaking truth to power and being assertive and kind of just fighting that, you know, real ch- tangible, palpable feeling that people will have yes. uh, of kind of, you know, addressing that kind of culture that we talked about in, yeah. in what's often a male-dominated environment or people, you know, people who feel you know, lesser or made to feel lesser or, or, you know, in in that way? Um, For me, the biggest thing that I can do, particularly in this role, is not necessarily the fact that I'm female or I'm from a BME background or that I've got two kids, although all of those things are important. I think what is most important is that I keep talking about being a GP in this role. Um, So, you know, this is what my patient has experienced. This is what I've just been through. This is the sort of day I've just had. These are the sorts of requests I've had. These are the sorts of requests I'm still getting, you know, and that is what's really important because that's the truth to power because that's that moment when people go, this is is important because it is an actual professional patient interaction that we're um, changing, playing with, altering, transforming, whatever mm. that might be. Sure. Um, and, and that's a bit that's really important for me to represent on more, more, almost more than anything else because that's how you get a different type of patient voice, but patient voice nonetheless into the organisation. And yeah. that's really important. And so so what maybe what I'm hearing is that you're saying, you know, you, you're always making it about the issue, mm. um, you know, and you may get pushback from people who... Who who you know try to make it about the person, but yeah. you're always trying to make it about the issue. You have to Would focus. Right? Yeah, you have to focus on the stuff that's important and and the outcome that you're trying to achieve, rather mm. than necessarily counting the widgets on the way there. So sometimes people say, "Oh, it'd be really good if we can measure this and this and this and this." And I'm like, "What? Why? Isn't it more important that we get to this particular outcome?" Yeah. And a person who is dying can die at home or in their preferred place of um of uh, where they'd rather die with the support they need and the family they need and all of that, then we had X number of extra nurses, GPs, whatever. Although that does help, yeah. let's move on from that kind of overly managed um, construct to a much more improvement outcomes-based um, uh, offer. And actually what I'm hearing more of now, particularly as we're starting to design the contract and other things, is less siloed funding, less tapered funding, less bidding. Let's help recognise and respect professionalism and autonomy and agency because actually when we do that we all work better as well how how does that how does that happen in a world so let's let's i think it's, it's a good segue now sure. into what we wanted to talk, what we bookmarked into earlier about kind of you being a gp on the front yes. line and, and kind of being that voice of um prioritizing primary care yes you know we live in a world where it's all about the data it's all about <laughs> outcomes and things like that and that's one part of things but there's also this thing of you know how about the non-measurable stuff how about the you know the learned experiential things yeah. that, that, that we have in that in, in our profession that you can't always measure or there's not always hard data for um and you know i think it's, it's important to get that balance mm. right so you know it's good that the you mentioned these things um but 
you know, you also said that, you know, how, how do we prioritize that? So what I guess what I'm trying to say is this, it's, it's kind of a, a macrocosm of the microcosm yes. that you have, yes. which is, okay, you're a frontline GP, you have the everyday frustrations yes. that every um, frontline GP has. Mm. And yet you also have to live in this kind of NHS England political world mm-hmm. where there is policy for A, B and C, um, but you're like, hey, but, you know, you know, none of that's addressing this, you know, X, Y, and Z, which actually I'm experiencing on the front, on the front line. And so how are you, how do you balance that and be that conduit to, to champion what's needed? So I think that's where probably, I guess, more of the, the, the leadership bit comes in, in yeah. a way, because okay, um, you have to be, artic- you have to be able to articulate your case in lots of different ways, I think, mm. particularly in this role. So you have that human element, this is what my colleagues are facing, this is what my patients are facing. But actually, there's a really strong evidence base for investing in primary care, both from an outcome perspective to a health inequality and life expectancy perspective. <coughs> Excuse me. So we need that data as well. Mm. Um, publishing the GP appointments data, uh, the workload data just before Christmas, was an interesting um, move from us in that. We wanted to, and for years, people have been calling for um, clarity around the amount of people GPC. We know that that's you know more than three hundred million appointments a year, absolutely, um, and rising year on year. Um, so we need to be able to do that to show the size of the pressure and the challenge in general practice. But when I was asked quite recently, do I want to categorise every appointment going in general practice? I was sort of thinking, no, I don't, because mm. I have people coming in because they're lonely, and I'm not saying that that's the best use of my time. But actually, that will then stop them circling round and coming in with something much worse I'm absolutely sure of that so you know sometimes what we do as GPs in fact a lot of the time is not measurable it's not tangible in the way that we like to count um, yeah. uh, peas in a pod to <laughs> I like you what know? you've done there there you go there you go that was completely <laughs> unplanned actually look at me um, but we can't do that sometimes this yeah. job is much more um, much more brilliant than that you know, and that's what general practice, that's why general practice is so exciting. That's why we love doing it. Yeah. Um, but it also then makes it really hard to quantify. Um, so I don't, in a sense, I don't know is the answer to your question. I'm trying to manage a very, um, a very, very wobbly, it's not even a tightrope, it's a frayed piece of cotton that I can't quite balance on where I'm sort of trying to um, argue the case for more investment, which I think is, is landed because actually, you know, people do get that here. We've got, we've got that commitment to additional investment, but also say don't micromanage us on it because then we won't be able to do the stuff that we're really good yeah, at. Yeah. And that's hard. And I think you can mm. tip both ways and we'll continue to keep tipping both ways. But that's, that's the role of clinical leadership and input into anything that you do. You need that voice to kind of keep rem- reminding people how to get that important balance. Yeah, sure. Now, you know, you're in a leadership position um, and the, the, probably the, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're very visible, right? Yes. In terms of, you know, your, <laughs> yeah. your, your, you know, director for primary care for NHS England, you know, huge responsibility. We've talked about the remit of the role. It also means that everything you do and say is critiqued, criticised, you know, and, you know, politicised mm. as well. How do you balance that, or how do you how do you take that on a personal level? How do you pick yourself up when you're criticised? Oh, see, I someone told me years ago that you know, if you want to do other things, you know, if you want to be a manager or whatever it is, you know, do your commissioning, whatever it was, you kind of have to develop a thick skin. Um, and I I never did that. I think I forgot to do that. I'm not very good at that. I'm still. Um, uh, the heart and the sleeve thing plays both ways. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, I I don't mind standing behind anything that I've said or I've contributed to. I think it's really hard um, when decisions are made that are outside of my gift. Um, but actually, I'm in this for the greater good. So, i.e., I'm trying to get to a bigger place for primary care. So, actually, yeah. if I've got to take some knots along the way, then that's just what I'm going to have to do. Um, yeah. I am purposefully visible. I think it's really hard um, to believe in something or a direction or a travel or a person if you can't not touch them but hear them and understand them and know who they are as people. You know, if, if it were me and I had to believe in something, I'd want to believe in something usually for the person or mm. for the group of people who are delivering a change. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't, um, I, think that, I think it's really hard then to 
to throw yourself into something that might be different and challenging um, but potentially exciting so I think it's only fair that people get a sense of who I am what I believe in how I work what's important to me because um, you have a, a bulletin and a blog and you talk yeah. about what you do and what, yeah. you, what you do yeah. and what you are, your Absolutely. experiences yeah and I think I mean personally that resonates really well it's nice to know that in the ivory tower there are people <laughs> yeah. who you know are yeah. you know in touch I, I guess with, with what's going on and you know obviously there's a balance to be struck and some people might say well one day a week that's not enough I, but you know yeah, you know you have to you have to get the balance right of trying to do this job right I have to do it and yeah. and still be in touch Absolutely. with things and you know you, no one will always be happy but you know I think from on a personal level I think it's great to to see that someone you know however small it might be yeah you know you still are in touch with your clinical yeah, role no, I, I absolutely I absolutely understand it that a day a week does not represent what my I wasn't suggesting do. that no no yeah, no I know yeah. I know but I think it's important to say that I, I get that that doesn't represent what my colleagues do yeah but that's why it's so important that the rest of the time I'm in touch with other people up and down the country know what they feel see how they feel visit how people feel because, i just saw on twitter yeah, yeah. you put oh i'm going to be in this place in <laughs> on this day yeah. you know and then so yeah. that's that's yeah. good like you put out I a bat signal to, i do i do yeah. because what we used i think what we used to do is sort of organize it quite centrally and i'd much rather people tell me and have um so it's not always the same places that get visited you mm. know um if you want me to come and see what you're doing good, bad, ugly, phenomenal, whatever it is, you want to share something, you, you can, that that should be your right as much as some of the yeah. other places that get all of the people coming to visit, yeah. you know, so, yeah. so that's why it's um, important for me to be contactable, connected. Um, I run a WhatsApp group for the primary care network leaders, so people who are starting to take up leadership roles within their own primary care networks and that's really early days but we've got 220 people on that group it's phenomenal the energy the excitement the the honest response so I will put stuff on there I'll kind of say oh look this is this is what's happening and this isn't happening and people will either say that's a terrible idea or be part of creating a better solution um and and, and I like that so they've all got yeah. my number and occasionally people have then got in touch directly and said this has happened or that has happened or can you help with this and we we are we have and um you know for, say for example we had a really uh, somebody who got in touch with a really uh, challenging pension issue and uh, we were able to sort it out for her and actually yeah. the the system within which many of us operate is too muddled it wasn't working for her so the ability for her to kind of say actually Nikki could you help with this and us to be able to then sort it out felt really good so actually I'm happy to sacrifice some of my I guess my personal <laughs> space and yeah. um, maybe take a bit of a battering if it means that people can get stuff solved yeah well and that's good to hear and it kind of resonates with something that you have blogged about as well which is peer support yeah um, and that's important. How do we get that right? You know, it happens in pockets. Yes. You know, people get organised themselves and do that. But how do we? How do we? How do we make that better? Because I feel that that's that's a real important point of clinicians avoiding yeah. being disenfranchised and burning out. And you talked about silos before and breaking barriers. And you know, I think, you know, how do we connect better with each other? So I, I don't know how many of your listeners will still have a young practitioners group, but I, I still have GPs in my networks, friends who are in their 60s and 70s who are meeting with their young practitioners group even now. Whereas, yeah. whereas now, I don't think as many GPs will start general practice with their own kind of tribe or network. And I think that's a real pity because mm. uh, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think it's what my GP events does as well. It said, start to bring people together. It could yeah. be around learning. It could be around food I think food's a really good reason to meet people um, but really anything that will bring people together because that peer connection that relationship that sense of uh, belonging is is critical we feel so isolated yeah. otherwise and none of us work well we're not meant to be isolated creatures and um, the whole point about starting to support primary care networks is because they were happening anyway people were coming together as more than one practice to say there's some stuff that we can do better together, but also it's quite neat to be able to come together and learn from each other and support each Absolutely, other. Yeah. And let's build that in. And I think that happens at every level and it needs to happen at every level. So it could be within a practice, it could be across a network, it could be across a primary, secondary. When you say primary care networks, just just for yeah, people who absolutely. might not be familiar with that, yeah. what's, what is that? So that is a group of um, 
So in the context of general practice, and then I'll widen it out, in the context of general practice, a primary care network is three to five practices coming together to work together more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not about merging. It is about supporting you, whatever size you are, small or large, to be able to work at a footprint that's sort of manageable, which is yep. roughly thirty to 50,000 people, mm-hmm. um, patients, yep. uh, coverage. And it means that you can do some things together that will make sense. So I might be the anti-coag practice and you down the road might be the diabetes practice, but actually it might just mean that you can employ or you can look after a greater number of staff together. You can get some social prescribers in, some clinical pharmacists, um, and you can create something that works better for your population but also in terms of keeping your population outside of the hospital space, but also it becomes quite exciting for you as a practitioner. So, um, you know, actually working within a network within a network means you might be able to be a bit more creative about how you deliver your care. You might be able to do more group consultations if that's what you want to do. You might have mm. a different type of digital front door, and that's fine, but it's about bringing people together. Yeah. But it applies across the piece. So the primary-secondary interface, how many of us don't know who we're referring to anymore when we refer to secondary care? And my secondary care colleagues say the same. I don't know who the GP is that's referring to yeah. So yeah. how can I do a shared care agreement? And us GPs are sort of saying, please don't give us a shared care agreement yeah. without yeah. having a proper, a proper agreement with us. Well, you know, um, in my old patch, we started just to have dinners, um, local kind of dinners where we would share issues have some food, get to know each other a bit. So that actually when I referred to my local, you know, uh, uh, geriatrician, actually it was a much more dynamic process and I could pick up a phone as opposed to, mm. you know, and, and, and people will say, look, that's how it used to be anyway. Absolutely, but we've lost a lot of that. Yeah. It's that sense of community and that sense of place that we need to start building back up. It's, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, relationships are the bedrock of, like, within clinician to clinician, yeah. but even, like, you know, with our patients. So... You know, it's it's interesting in terms of like how things move forward. Yes. And I know I know it's all within negotiations, but you know, you know, p- there's this dichotomy that everyone talks about about, for example, access yes. versus continuity. Yes. And is it a versus? Does is it have it? to be? And that's a good question. And, 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 and I've gone off topic a little yeah, bit because we're right. talking about relationships <laughs> between primary and secondary care. But I think it's e- equally important because relationships are the are the thing that people value often. Right. Absolutely. Um, so how do we get that right as well? We need to support more of it to happen, and that happens at an individual level. Whether you have, um, you you do, I do, I really believe, and I say this a lot to um, when I group, when I speak to groups of kind of newly qualified or newly qualifying GPs, is find your network, find your tribe, have a group. It could just be a WhatsApp group, and I have mm. about forty different just yeah. work related ones, yeah. where you know you're just creating those relationships and those connections. Um, I, I really hope that what we'll be able to see by the end of contract negotiations is a contract that is supportive of um, a professional's professionalism, their autonomy, their knowledge, um, giving the gift of um, the, the gift of agency back to the profession so mm. that they can start to bring people together and work much more in a networked way. I don't mean there's a primary care network as such, but being able to work with each other in a, yeah. in a way that feels easy rather than difficult. So we're not putting walls up all the time. Yeah. But saying, you know, you should absolutely be working as a team of different professionals um, because that's great for patients and the public, but it's also good for you as well. So I sure. hope that we'll start to see much more of that in the coming months. Well, it'll be, year. you know, it's it's hard. Like, like you said at the beginning, change is slow at mm. these levels. Um, and it takes a lot of will and um, it, there are a lot of enablers that are needed yeah. but hopefully we start getting I'm feeling very positive about it um, let's come back to that, this leadership bit um, some people think about leadership and think oh well you know that they roll their eyes and think oh leadership you know that's just a fancy thing yeah. first question is what do you say to those people and the second is, what's your advice to people who aren't on the other side of the coin, who are like, you know what, I want to get involved in this okay. stuff? Um, I remember when I took on that first role I mentioned as a house officer and then SHO in, in, in what was then called, we made it up, we called it service modernisation. Um, and my we had an endocrinology consultant, and I still, I know his name, I won't, I won't say it, um, but he'll know if he ever <laughs> listens to this, he <laughs> went, you're joining the dark side, Nikki. And I remember that mentality, and that mentality's all stayed. Mm. Do you know, I, I almost just want to drop some of the titles around this. Forget the leadership bit or the management mm. bit. 
I feel like I'm a clinician 100% of the time. It's just I discharge my duties in a different way to some of mm. my colleagues. So I see patients one day a week. The rest of my week is about making general practice and private care and the offer to the public better. Um, and that's the bit that I want people to focus on. If you can join people together around something that's important, that's what it's about. It's not about whether you're a lead or a director or anything else. Let's go back to the stuff that's really important for us, the stuff that we want to see. And so whether or not you're interested in this sort of stuff and mm. whatever you want to call it, dip your toe in because there'll be something that really excites you. I loved commissioning. I loved it. I know it sounds bananas, but you know, designing services that fit a population, a population that usually experiences inequalities because the services haven't been designed for them before is phenomenal. You know, um, being here and over the last six months being able to design um, a primary care submission to a long-term plan which started out with, you know, without funding for primary care, and we've now got three point five billion pounds uh, allocated to primary care. That's phenomenal to be part of. So, you know, that's a you know one extreme to another in a sense. Yeah. But if you are interested in building on your day job, not taking away from it, not detracting on it, but building on it and doing something in addition to that, then I think first of all speak to somebody about it get you don't even need a formal mentor but speak to somebody and that could be if you're in a practice uh, a partner that you've got a particularly good relationship with or your senior partner it could be in your local patch it could be the clinical lead for a particular uh, care pathway or it could be your local ccp chair primary care networks are already up and down the country so you might have a primary care network lead that you think oh actually I'm quite interested in what you're doing or a federation lead you could be interested in education in um, academia you know there are people out there that will help to grab you in and give you some opportunities so always always ask and failing that you know uh, drop me a line on twitter and I'll make sure that you find somebody well, to, to look after you you know what you know it's fine Nikki um as we come to the end of the this podcast episode um i just want to discuss something around the competing things um competing for attention for, for to be a priority mm-hmm. for, for primary care so you know our health secretary talks about technology mm-hmm. um you know some people talk talk about improved funding or partnership or address, you know how do we address the workforce issue in the right way and you know you, you've alluded to a little bit to you know how you deal with that what's your vision with how primary care will change over the next you know two three four five years mm-hmm. well over the next so we've been really tasked to look at what primary care should be in five years and ten years yeah. because of the long-term plan but i think all of us have been thinking about this in one way or another yeah the current model has incredible assets and we know that general practice that role of not just the gatekeeper but that trusted professional uh, the continuity that offers and the care that offers over generations is phenomenal absolutely see that see the impact it has on the rest of the health system as well but general practice is changing primary care is changing and the population is changing so when you put those two things together it means that something needs to move on not change completely but move on um there is a large group of the population that is growing that wants to access care differently to the way that they used to or that their parents or grandparents access care. So being able to have a digital option is important, I think. And whether that is um, access to appointments or triage or online consultations or a whole range of self-care offers or remote monitoring offers or all of that. It could be some of that. It could be all of that. People will want that more and more. Um, and you'll see it if you've got kids or if you've got younger siblings or whatever. You know, my kids are so tech savvy. And I, I am the mum that does no screens during the week. And even then, my kids can navigate tech much better than I can already. And they're seven and 11. So we've got generation that's coming that will want to interact with healthcare differently. That doesn't mean we lose continuity. It's just it means we deliver care slightly differently for different members of the population. Um, and people will come in and out of periods of continuity and we need to be able to do that. Um, on the general practice side, we know that the workforce is changing. We know that no matter how exciting partnerships will look, I hope, as the future uh, months and years come on, there will be people who don't want to be partners. And that's okay too. So being able to say, you know, be a GP, be a GP in a local place, get the support that you need, whether that's um, access to training and CPD, access to local networks and knowing who else is around mm-hmm. and being able to be connected in place is fine. Because actually what you might want to do is 
six sessions of general practice and then something else you're passionate about and that might be being a carer and that might be being um director of primary care for nhs england um or whatever it is yeah you know please look at that as 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 any you know the spectrum is there and that depends yeah. on what you're passionate about so um in order to do that i do think that that's a part of it i don't think they're the be all and end all i think they are part of the glue that will help practices start to define their own local offer I'd love to see practices that are, um, continue to be and are more connected into the community. So you've got your park run practices and practices who offer food bank vouchers yeah. and things like that. We have a society that is fractured and practices are really part of the glue that can hold that together. Um, but we have to get the workload pressures right first. In well, general yeah, because people might argue, well, you know, you know, that that that's a great place for that to occur. But, you know, you know, in the words of you know some some people what do we stop to you know yeah. make that happen so i think i think part of that is our job actually i think yeah. a big part of that is our job yeah. um at nhs england through our teams which is to say there are certain things that gps need to be there to do i.e complex work as long as we give you the time and space to do it i think that's a key thing as well um, yeah. and that's important but then actually there's a whole range of other people that should sit around you as as the as the the lead in the practice to support you so your social prescriber your physician's associate your pharmacist your physiotherapist and I think what we need to move to is a more team-based mentality in general practice than it's ever been before and it's always been quite team-based but you know how do we bring in other professions to support the practice in doing um, the stuff that it absolutely needs to do and other stuff that might work well with the community but that you won't have the capacity to do yourself as a GP so it's, we can't do everything. We can't do everything. We can't so it's do about, everything. I guess it's, you know, it's about picking the things that technology will realistically, impactfully help right. with. It's about how do we effectively work with allied health professionals. But then I think what's also important is if there are efficiency gains from mm-hmm. that, that that's translated in, okay, if we need to do more complex care, yeah. etc., that that's actually reflected in, we shouldn't still be doing that in 10-minute appointments, no. for example. And so, also seeing... Uh, 10 people in a morning with complex issues for 20 minutes each or 30 minutes each would be exhausting. So we can't also pretend that we can wave a magic wand and expect all GPs to work to look after complex patients for longer appointment times but not recognise the impact that that would have. So it would have to be fewer patients for a longer amount of time. So, you know, we're going to have to think very carefully over the coming months and years um, about how we set ourselves up so that we can use and support GPs to the absolute best of their ability without knocking them out before they've even had a chance to do all the things that they want to. Yeah. One thing I really wanted to ask you about, I read about something you do called STEM Sisters. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So about five years ago, my sister and I um, set up STEM Sisters. So it's just um, a social enterprise. It's just me and my sister. My sister is an astrophysicist and works for the Royal Astronomical Society as an outreach officer. And... Five years ago, the second M was ed- added to the acronym acronym STEM. So STEM yeah. is science, technology, um, engineering, engineering yeah. and maths, and then medicine was added. Yeah. Um, it wasn't formally uptaken around the country, but certainly we thought that's a great opportunity for us to do something together. Hence STEM Sisters, so it's me and my sister. Um, we've both benefited from great mentoring over the years. So the idea is um, that you... A, if you are particularly from uh, particularly uh, disadvantaged communities or communities that don't necessarily have access to mentoring when you need it most, so actually your pre, you know, your teens, mm-hmm. your pre GCSE choices to say, as you can become an astrophysicist or an engineer or whatever it is you want to do, um, so access to mentoring and educational opportunities so that people can have a chance to set their horizons wherever they want, so we can have a more equal access and opportunities across uh, STEM roles in the future. Awesome, that sounds really interesting. It's fun, and I get to do it with my sister, so that's quite nice. And you get on with her. <laughs> I do, I do. Is she, so I she's do. like, she's one of the supportive um, women who would be like backing you on the, if she, she was on the she, other side, she, side, she, side she of the has, table. She has, she's also just written a book about Michelle Obama, so I think she's phenomenal, but we do, we absolutely back each other, and um, even though in different parts of the, the kind of the career world, it's, it's great to have have uh, an ally out there. I was gonna uh, I was also gonna ask who inspires you well she Who's, does yeah okay. <laughs> easily easily yeah. um I have a uh, actually a p- uh, parents who 
won't be a surprising story for many. So my dad was a refugee from Uganda in 72. Mum was an economic migrant. Um, so they're phenomenally inspiring. Dad was... My mum was a, 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 also uh, from, from Uganda. Yeah. Was so, probably in the same situation. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. 72, dad was in a refugee camp in Ashford for mm. six months. You know, um, wow. And I've been to Calais and I saw some of... Uh, the situations and the conditions people were in in Calais and my dad saw it and went, yeah, that's pretty much what happened to us. And you just think, oh my gosh, to go from that to there to, you know, giving us an incredible childhood is phenomenal. So they, they're a big part of it. And for those who uh, feel anxious about the lack of, uh, or the one day a week <laughs> clinical work that I do, I have a husband who's a senior partner, works all the hours that God sends, um, and is also a trainer and a programme director, and leads a, a group of practices and all of that. So, I mean, he's phenomenal because he reminds me of actually the amount of work that GPs do every day, not just the one day that I'm in there. <laughs> so, so there you go. So, so it's <laughs> a team kids. effort, isn't it? it it's is. it's, it's it about is. getting that right. And so if you have that in place, I guess that makes things a lot easier mm. for you if, you, if you if you're in a position to... I think that's, to, to, that's right. Yeah. And and I am lucky I've got family nearby. Um, uh, and, and then I, I try and read a lot um, yeah. and listen to either podcasts or audibles. So obviously more podcasts since you're on the scene. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I love listening to autobiographies read by women who have done, and, and for me, women, because it resonates. Yeah. So Oprah's last book was phenomenal and just really made me think differently, behave differently. Um, How about Michelle and, Obama's? Yeah, and um, so I've just listened to Becoming, and yeah. I have cried on tubes. <laughs> oh, wow. So a uh, warning to anyone who's listening while out of a bath. It is phenomenal. I've also laughed on tubes as well, so I've got the balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it, I think it's really important to have that backdrop of uh, narrative of other people's lives and you know experiences and everything, just to keep you thinking, keep you on track, keep you challenged, I guess, yeah, to yeah. Um, be inspired and to keep pushing on. Yeah. We've covered loads and loads there. Um, we've gone from talking about um, you know, your role and the challenges you have yeah. in NHS England and prioritising primary care, you know, to the struggles and challenges you've had being a woman, being yeah. BME, um, uh, and um, the advice that you've had for um, other women in leadership roles. And lots, you know, we've meandered through lots of things about your frontline experience yeah. as well. Um, and and a lot of the, a lot of the challenges and the priorities and what you see as the future of primary care. So it's really it's been a real real epic trek oh. with you. So thank you, thank you. So well, it's been a real you. real I've pleasure really talking to you. Um, having having you on two GPs and a partner. I wish I could go on. Because, you know, you're <laughs> a big a role model for 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 people who are looking to get into leadership roles. Oh, but in particular, you. I think women and people of um, you know, uh, with a background, uh, you know, with, with um, BME background. Yeah. So, so you know, you are held in high esteem um, oh. in that. And, and I think, you know, hopefully our listeners, um, you know, male and female, yeah. um, you oh, know, yeah. would have found, you know, would have, uh, would have taken away a lot, you know, and, and hopefully you've enjoyed it as much, as thoroughly as I have. So really thank you for taking it. the time thank and you. inviting me to... Um, um, the ivory tower so can, we, um, can we just we'll just do a sense check here since people yeah. won't be able to see it I do have a, a very normal sort of space you do I tell you what let's do a corner. picture okay we'll, we'll do, do a picture, picture for you so you can see how normal <laughs> so, it's, it, you know you must have got rid of like the gold plate um, <laughs> yeah. like ornaments that you have all the, all the ostentatious it basically stuff, looks yeah. like my desk <laughs> in the surgery except I don't have a computer in it so it feels so what like do you do? Oh, you've, you've got a laptop. laptop yeah brilliant well thank you so much and thank you listeners for listening a happy new year to you all and thank you again thank you for having me thank you all right bye